Thank you so much, Pastor Jeff, for leading us in our service. Thank you, Tongin and team. And above all, we thank God for bringing any and everyone to join us in our service, hearing the Word of God, always pointing to God Himself and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're preaching through the book, the epistle of Colossians, and precious lessons always whenever we open God's Word. So let's begin our time by asking a question. What do you think are the most destructive forces in the world? What do you think are the most constructive forces in the world? And what change can you and I bring? And how far will you go to bring about that change, to stop the destructive, to bring about the constructive? And I think it's without a doubt that we know that war is perhaps one of the most powerful destructive forces of the world. And I've said to you again and again, if you've joined us here as members, as regulars, people tuning in, that wherever I go around the world, if I have an opportunity to go to a museum, a war museum, to see what kind of wars they have inflicted on others or others have inflicted on them. And I showed you this when I went to Japan last year and at Hiroshima. Just a museum remembering the horrors of the atomic bomb bringing an end to World War II, at least in the Pacific. And I just took multiple pictures to see how horrendous it is when we do this to each other, inhumanity to fellow men. And of course, we can't show you too much of this because for some, it will not just spoil your lunch. Is this possible that we do this to each other? On the other hand, we also are capable of very constructive things. So what are you facing? What are we facing all around the world? Many of us are facing cabin fever, being locked in, work from home, uh, here in Singapore, home-based learning. And with that sudden shift, all of a sudden we can't go to a workplace, a study place, we are all at home. What happens? This is what has happened in, in India. I read about this. Subarna Ghosh has started a petition to Prime Minister Modi. And at the heart of the petition is, Prime Minister, please make men share the housework in India. And why is this a problem? Why is this a problem? Because in India, the estimates are, let me read the stats here. According to International Labour Organization report in 2018, women in urban India spend 312 minutes a day or an on unpaid care work, household chores, washing, cleaning, sweeping. Men did, so women did 312 minutes, which is about five hours of domestic work, and men in urban areas in India did 29 minutes. In villages, it was 291 minutes for women as against 32 for men. So let me read Sir Barna's, um experience of this. And her experience was, she was doing work, and yet she was expected to do most of the housework, and there began friction and fighting, and she couldn't take it anymore, and one day said, I, I can't do it. And the, the whole family, because the husband, the daughter, and the son say, then don't do it. And she took that literally. She stopped cook cooking, she stopped washing, she stopped cleaning, and guess what? The house went in a total disarray. Everything was just piled up at the sink. Nothing was clean. And they had to say sorry and started to do their, their share of work. And a few things in there were quite, quite um, humorous as part of the petition. Does the handle of a jadu, a broom, does the washing machine or gas stove come printed with the words to be operated by women only? Have you ever opened a household good in which only women can operate this washing machine, only women can operate this vacuum cleaner, only women can operate this mop? So, it's led to gender politics. If there is one fallout from this, we now come to family politics, gender politics. So, who will do the washing? Who will do the sweeping? Unless you have domestic helpers, I don't have. Do you? And they asked in India, very, very pertinently, can and will the Prime Minister bring about this change, this powerful, constructive change that will change gender relationships, save marriages and save families? 
Whenever we go through crisis, we need to know whether we are bringing destructive or constructive force and change to our hearts, to our homes, to our villages, to our towns, to our cities, to life in general. That's very important. There is no more powerful truth than the gospel. And the gospel is God saying to us that He has finally broken in in human history to bring about the most powerful, constructive, never-to-be-reverse change in the universe, in the world, and in your heart and my heart, in all our relationships. And that has come through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So by the time we arrive at Colossians 3, we call this a turning point in the book. Because you see, many times, especially in the epistles, there is the, firstly the doctrinal part for a few chapters, and then the turning point is, so believing in God, sending His Son, believing in Jesus as Saviour and Lord, what does that mean for you and me? This is the passage. This is the fulcrum. This is the turning point where it moves from the doctrinal part to its implications and its practice practical godliness in our life. If then you have been raised with Christ, you are to seek the things that are above. Why? Because this is where Christ is. The invisible Christ, the, the glorious Christ, He's seated where? At the right hand of God. The ultimate position of authority over all beings in heaven and on earth. Verse 2. You are to set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. Notice, he didn't say you have died, right? And your life is hidden here on earth. It's hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with Him in glory. What does he mean by this? He carries on. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you and what is earthly or fleshly in us, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of this, the wrath of God is coming. In this you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. In summary, when we read chapter 3, the simple message of the Bible to us, the simple message of the Holy Scriptures, God's revelation of Himself, as his, of His Son, and salvation in Christ, is believing in Jesus makes a whole world of difference. Believing in Jesus makes a difference to yours and my sexual life and stories. Believing in Jesus changes our anger in our hearts and the speech upon our tongues. It brings about anger therapy and speech therapy, which so hurts and harms and scars and destroys persons, relationships, marriages, families, whole societies. And when you read to the end, as Pastor Jeff read for us so powerfully and passionately, it will bring about a change to our racial stories, our clan stories, our class stories, it will bring about to our relational stories where in verse 12 to 15 that we'll read of next week, where we can make peace even though we have wronged each other. Make peace because of the word of Christ and the peace of Christ. And what does that all mean? And he's going to end with Christ is all and in all. Let me just pause there for a moment. We talk about, in this world, do you, do you believe this? In commercial terms, when you go out there, do you buy into this? Do you buy into this story? Do you, which story have you bought into in the past week? You listen to all sorts of stuff on the net. Most of it is rubbish. Right? A lot of it is rubbish. Some of it is helpful. Have you bought into the God stuff, the God word to you? And this is the God word, that the person of Jesus and the finished work of Jesus and the continuing work of Jesus by His Spirit and by His Word, makes all the difference in your life and my life. Where there is no part of your life which is unchanged by this. So put it another way when we look at verse 1 to 4. The four moments of Jesus' life. We died, His death, His resurrection, 
And where is he now? He's exalted, raised to sit at God's right hand, supreme position of authority. And then our lives are hidden with him, and when he returns, no longer as the invisible Lord, no longer as the suffering Messiah, but as the glorious Messiah, there's four moments of Jesus' life that Paul speaks about in Colossians 1-4 to changes every moment of our life. Do you buy into this? What's your buy-in rate? Some people buy into this and buy into that, all sorts of things. And in the previous chapter, the Christians in Colossae had bought into creeping false teaching. False teaching that had come in. Philosophy, well sound, fine-sounding arguments, making it the true Christian life and the true Christian experience is such. And Paul says, no, if you want to buy into anything, don't buy into that. All those things are from spiritual con men. All those things kidnap you from your rightful owner, God, and your rightful Redeemer, your loving, your loving Redeemer, Jesus. If you want to buy into anything, you now buy into the gospel. The good news that there is no hope for you and me, no hope for the world, apart from Jesus and His work on the cross. And post-resurrection, He sits at God's right hand, ruling the universe. And so we read that before. You have been raised with Christ. You seek the things above. Things to explain here. Why is this a turning point? Why has it gone from theology to life? How? If you use the language, the language has gone from indicatives to imperatives. Wow, I'm listening to this on a sat Saturday evening. I'm tuning in this on a Sunday morning. Whenever you're tuning into this, I hope you're tuning into this with some sort of reverence and decorum, listening to God speak into your life, not just lounging there and lam noir on the sofa, right? Just snacking away and wants to turn on, turn on, run to the fridge. Did I just rebuke you there? Gently, gently. Don't get too used to worshipping at home and worshipping without reverence of God. What's the meaning of moving from indicatives to imperatives linguistically? It moves from what Christ has done perfectly to what we must do to embrace the perfection of His work, the continuation of His work, the benefits of His work, the victory of His work for us. And so it moves from positional holiness, the passport Jesus has given us. So the government may give you a passport, you, you're a citizen of this country, but do you live up to the standards of it? Do you get into trouble overseas? Do you misrepresent what Singapore is or whichever country? You carry a passport of a good country, but your behaviour overseas or your behaviour anywhere is not commensurate, is not proportional, doesn't gel with that high honour given to you. So from the positional holiness of Christ and everything He gives to us, to our progressive holiness, that by faith and obedience to Him, we can do this. So, a few things to unpack and explain here for us. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is, I do not know what you consider reality. COVID-19 is reality. No, it's not. It's reality for, for a while. And please do not start to think that interacting with each other by Zoom is the new reality, that online and virtuality, I do not know, but I'm crumbling inside. And throughout the past week, I've just met person after person on Zoom, saying, enough la, zoomed out, enough la, zoom out, cannot take any more. Children, adults, men, women, enough la, zoomed out. I need to see some, some real humans and interact with real humans. So I went for a walk nearby the Botanic Gardens. And as I went, I said, oh, today is especially crowded this evening. And then I remembered, oh, it's school holidays. It was so good just walking down that beautiful valley leading down to the Symf uh, Symphony Lake, I think, right, where concerts are held, to see dotted on the green, green grass, picnics, picnics, whole families, five of them, five of them, five of them, I hope there are five of them, just out there. That is, that is reality. God made us to be real persons in real relationships in real time, not to be hiding behind a screen. So much so that when we come out of COVID-19, I think you have to draw a screen around you and say, I'm out of it. I've just come out of Zoom. What is reality? The reality, God tells us, that this world 
And the Bible uses a word for this world, Babylon. The capital of this world, Babylon, the symbol of our rebellion against God, is not real. God has come to offer us a new capital and a new world. The new capital is the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. And the person has come to take us from a man-made, self-pleasing, self-glorifying world which earns God's judgment and transfers us to God's kingdom. Paul speaks about this in chapter 1. From the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of the sun he loves. And the only person who can give you that transfer is the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's God's end time and eternal Messiah. Messiah just means the chosen, anointed King of God. And when this is quoted, I think Paul has in mind, and the scholars all agree, he probably has in mind the echo of Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 was the promise that in the last days, in the end time, God will send His end time ruler, an eternal ruler, this is God's most powerful intervention to stop what? This is God's most gracious yet most powerful intervention to stop the most fatal interruption. What's the most fatal interruption to our lives now? We all say with one voice, the most fatal interruption, the biggest disruption to my life is COVID-19. Messed up our study life, messed up our work life, messed up our present, messed up our future, messed up our economy. And we do not know what to choose, beginning with governments. Right? To reopen, not reopen? Do we, do we promote and protect lives, public health? Or do we reopen and promote and, and uh, keep livelihood? So do we, which one do we do? Not easy, balancing between life and livelihood. We close for too long, we may not recover economically. You think that's easy? No, friends. The most fatal interruption is rebellion against God, instigated by Satan, which brought death into your life and my life. That brought death into the human experience. And you just have to go to attend a funeral, even before attending a funeral, you just have to go for a checkup where the doctor and the x-ray and the test proves to you, confirms to you or me that you have X number of months or years to live. What do you call that? A fatal disruption to your life. The most fatal intervention which no one can get you out of for the wages of sin is death. So is Jesus coming and dying and rising that brings about this. The next word that needs un explaining, unpacking is sick. And the root word in the Greek is zetio, right? Seek the things that are above. And zetio, you can have a whole family of words trying to explain this word translated as seek. It's pursue these things, hunger and thirst for this, strain towards. If you strain towards, it's the language of like a, an athlete where everything within you is trained for this sport, trained for this run. Every sinew in your body is geared towards this. Zetio will also mean you feel every idle moment, whatever comes to your mind, that is your zetio. That's what you are seeking. Whatever you fill your mind with, worries, anger, lust, right? that's what is your zetio. You busy, we busy ourselves with this. We find our identity with this. Busy ourselves. And whenever you read Colossians, perhaps here's one way to understand it. Paul the Apostle has one eye bifocal on Jesus and the cross and the fullness and the implications of Jesus and the cross for us, for the universe. He also has one eye on the false teaching. And the false teachers say, no, you really uh, want to be spiritual? You should busy yourself with three things. Busy yourself with keeping the law. The law, you must keep it. You must busy yourself with, with the body. The body, you must deny it. Because the more you deny it, asceticism, that's the technical word, the closer you are to God. And the third thing is experiences. You've got to feel it. And Paul is saying, because that was at the tail end of chapter 2, Paul is saying to them, if you want to busy yourself with anything as part of the true Christian life, the true God life, the true Jesus life that God has given to you, you busy yourself with seeking the reality that Christ rules from heaven and He rocks 
for want of a better word. His rule is a good rule. It's a wonderful rule. If Jesus didn't rule your mind and your heart, you'd be a nightmare to live with. And this is what we revolve our lives on, what we stick our lives on, zitio. But let's explore that slightly further. Jesus and his use of this word. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 to 33, at the, at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, what it means to be kingdom followers, kingdom subjects, people who will give up on their Judaism, the corrupted Judaism, to follow King Jesus. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, right, seek after these things, exactly the same root word, zitio, after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But if you follow, listen to Jesus and the gospel he's presenting, you should now have a different pursuit, a different zitio. You seek first the King, King Jesus, and the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. You don't depend on your keeping of the law, the law righteousness, the self-righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. So if we want to busy ourselves with anything, please don't busy ourselves with so-called churchy things, religious things, spiritual things that we do that look so good on the outside. Right? The law, please keep it. The body, beat it. Right? The experience, feel it. If we want to busy ourselves with anything, we busy ourselves with Christ and the blessings of Christ. Or else we'll carry on worrying ourselves to death. So, seek the things that are above. You know, there's a song, every time I preach this passage, that the song that captures this is, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. We know that one, the old one. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Right? Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of the earth will go strangely dim. And every time I preach it, I think there's a need to tweak that last word. And the things of earth will go strangely clear. That from this point onwards, in living my life, every area of my life live in reference to Jesus and deference. Reference means there's nothing in my life I cannot talk to Jesus about. I won't talk to Jesus about. There's nothing, should be nothing. And nothing in my life I live without deference, bowing the knee, surrendering to Him, and saying, You are Lord, Lord of my morning, Lord of this moment, Lord of my afternoon, Lord of my studies, Lord of my work, Lord of this anger, Lord of this temptation, Lord of this greed, Lord of this hurt. And the things of earth will go strangely clear. And from this point onwards, from verse 5, He's going to talk about our redeemed heart, our redeemed mind, our redeemed pursuits and passions and preoccupations, our whole life, and yet the moments in that life. Because our life is broken down into this moment or that moment that will determine how we live under God. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So this death here is, have you died? Right now, I'm alive, you're alive, you're listening to this. Of course, it's about our spiritual condition. Die to any and all human attempts to make paradise on earth. All attempts of self-redemption and all attempts at self-salvation. So we died to that whole system of living, worldliness, that we are best or better without God. Some of you sitting here thinking, actually my life was best, or was better or best without God. Is that right? That's a temptation from Satan. That's time to get rid of that rubbish thought. It's really something that has come from the evil one. You and I are never better or best without God and definitely without God sending His Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to warn you as you read scriptures because Paul had just spoken about his suffering on behalf of the Colossians, the, the, the church. Because on the surface, even though we believe in this glorious Messiah, the one who has defeated Satan, 
Yet our lives may look like losers, where we are a series of trials, a series of sufferings. And people, has anybody come up to you and say, wow, you look so different to the rest. You look so glorious, right? I've told you this a few times. I, I went to this dinner and arrived there. It was a gathering of religious leaders, etc. Um, and he, this person arrived earlier, a table of 10. I was second to arrive. And then we talked to each other and he asked me what I was doing. He, he was a um, community leader. So I said, I was pastor. And he said, even if you didn't say that right, I could see it on your face. Just, Wow. I don't know about you, but I pity you. Has anybody said to you as you catch the bus or the MRT, wow, you have a halo over you. I can see that you read the Bible this morning. I can see that you prayed. There is such a... No, friends. We live pretty unspectacular lives. We live pretty routine lives. And many times in this world, Though we believe in the glorious Christ, my, uh, your life and my life may not shine with that glory. So has anyone recognised your glory? The answer is, is no. And one of our deacons just came and bumped into him yesterday. Yeah, I think it was yesterday. Uh, just come, back, come from shopping, I think, and TUC or wherever he went. And uh, the counter lady say, Merdeka? Huh? Me, Merdeka? I mean, not me, but him. And we say, it can't be you, right? If I go there and say Merdeka, which if you're watching this from, from overseas, right, um, there is a discount card given to those who are older, who have been part of our nation building. But the leader that I spoke to, he's young in his 40s, he's all black hair, and the counter leader say, Merdeka generation? No, 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 no not, not me. So nothing glorious about him, right? Your life glorious as you believe in Jesus? just speaking to a man, father. Everything has fallen away in his life, his family life. And to last weeks or so, as a result of what's happened, how can I face, how can I face others from what has happened? And some of you could be going through the same thing. I've lost my job. I now have to go on aid. How can I face others? What hope is there? Somebody just texted me from overseas, you know, I've been asking you to pray. Pray for my, my child's marriage. The marriage has really fallen to bits. As I promise her, I will pray. Mona and I will pray every day for a breakthrough. The things have gone so wrong, so wrong. She texted me last night and said, miraculously, they came together for a meal. Miraculously, I said, let's keep on praying. Let's keep on praying. Though we look so much like losers, is the victory of Jesus over Satan, over sin, over the world. And Satan and sin will not have the last word in your life. And you do not have to ask, how can I face others? How can I face life? Because I look so defeated. I look like a louser and a loser. But that's the promise of God in His Word. If we find our positional holiness in Him and Him alone. Then it turns. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. And as we go here, I wanted to just ask us, without God, what are we masters of? You know, you heard of saying that we are jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, that could be a description of me, could be a description of you. You're jack of all trades. You can do a little bit of not everything, important things, but you don't excel in anything. But there's something we excel in. What is it we do best without God? You know why we chose Exodus 20? You know why we chose Leviticus 18? Because Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. And heading off the list of the Ten Commandments is the commandment to God's people, Israel in the Old Testament, you shall love God and God first and foremost and no one and nothing else. You shall have no other idols as competitors to God. No one but God alone. We do, what is it we do well? Let me explain it to us. A list of five sexual sins listed here. And Paul gathers them in, in groups of five. And these sexual sins, as you look at them, come from the inner maneuverings, the inner workings of this sexual sin 
to the outward manifestation. Sexual immorality, pornea, is sex before marriage, sex outside marriage, sex against God's blueprint, and God's blueprint is the beauty and the purity of sex as He created us was to be experienced between one man, one woman in lifelong marriage, in faithful marriage. Anything before that, anything outside of that, anything in competition to God-given sexual intimacy and beauty between a husband and wife in marriage is against God and His design. Impurity has a wider meaning. It has to do with sexual misbehavior. Passion is lust. And sexual misbehavior could happen anywhere. You go to a pub, you go to a dinner and dance, end of the year, you go for a company, a company outing because you did, the company did so well. There is always drink. And when there is drink and there's music and you're away from the family, right? When I was working and they say, are you coming for dinner and dance, dinner and dance? I don't want to be a party pooper, but I heard that in the dinner and dance, all sorts of things happen. In, in God's terms, in, in Bible terms, there'll be drunkenness and whenever there's drunkenness, there'll be looseness of behaviour. When there's looseness of behaviour, it's very, not long before it is each other on the bed. Not with your God-given spouse. Sexual misbehaviour, a lot of occasions for it in our fallen world. Passion, lust, evil desire. So this one is the inner manoeuvrings and then comes the outer manifestation, sexual immorality, evil desire, misplaced sexual desire. Anything outside God's wonderful blueprint as He said to us in Genesis, Adam and Eve. Covetousness, sexual greed in all likelihood because it's a list of sexual sins and in all likelihood refers to sexual greed. But here's the thing that we need to track down. Why does Paul in the scriptures say that greed is actually idolatry? What's so wrong with greed that it should be called idolatry? Listen, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And who said this? A self-improvement guru. No. Who said this is our Lord Jesus himself. Notice the, the preciseness of Jesus' words. We either love one, hate the other. So if we love money, we will hate God. If we love God, we have to hate money. It's not the incompatibility between the two, but it's the inconsistency. And so our R&R &R disease is when we reject love for God, which was there in Exodus 20. Israel, if you know nothing about God's high calling and honour given to you, is to love God with all your heart and mind and soul and have to know competing idols before Him. But when we embark on idolatry, we replace it. Please, put, we don't just replace it with self. We replace it with love for self. Where love for self replaces love for God, we have idolatry in the raw, idolatry in its crudest. Where love for self replaces rightful love for God, we have idolatry at its crudest. And who is pronouncing this? It is Jesus. For although they knew God, they did not honour Him as God, nor give thanks to Him, became futile in their thinking, foolish and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. If the first, in regards to idolatry, was our, our and our problem, we reject love for God, we replace Him with love for self. Rightful love for God, wrongful love for self, which is destructive of others. This is now our SS disease, where in Romans chapter 1, Right? Paul is speaking about this. We suppress the knowledge of God intentionally. And then once we suppress the knowledge of God, found in creation and in our conscience, no matter how flawed, we substitute it with our own wisdom. And when we substitute in our own wisdom, we're going to end up with the two fatal deadly eyes, idolatry and immorality. And that's where Paul goes in Romans 1. 
So what do we do best without God? When we cut God out of our lives, when we disconnect ourselves from God, we become masters of idolatry and we become masters of immorality. Every moment of our life, and we add up the moments, the whole of our life. Do you believe this? If we believe this, then here is the working formula or theology. How much we love Christ will be shown by how much we hate sin. It is from the indicative, it is from that flowing to the imperative. And by that, by this teaching, is not the zero occurrence of sexual sin in your life, that's not what he's asking for, but zero tolerance of it. How might this work out? If increasingly we are seeking Christ, the King, and setting our hearts and our minds, everything is about Him and loving Him and worshipping Him. And chapter 1, live a life that is worthy of Him, pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good thing. This should be now our prayer every day, living a life that is worthy of Him, pleasing to Him, instead of self-destructively pleasing to ourselves. So how does zero tolerance of sexual impurity work out in our lives? The Roman world was known for its sexual looseness. All the way from emperors who were sexual, bisexual, and sodomized people in public, to how it was. If you ever went to that part of the world, Europe, much of it, and look at all the art in all the museums and all the statues, a lot of them are very erotic. And that's only the tip of the iceberg of how sexuality was in the first century in the Roman world. And you can ask historians, but one main contributing factor, if not the main contributing factor, to the fall of the Roman Empire was not that it fell economically, it fell militarily. It fell because it had very poor, very low view of marriages and very low view of families, but very high view of sex outside of marriage, very high view of orgies. What was true then is still true today, friends. We live in a sex-mad world. And now with gadgets, our battle, see, in the ancient world, and I just went for a tour of Turkey, and the tour of Turkey took us to the seven cities. I highly commend that to you. Seven cities spoken about in Revelation. Seven churches spoken about. And so many of the places what I talk about, the statues and the different things there, you, you had to walk a certain distance to bump into another statue, another erotic piece of art. But today, you don't have to bump into things. It's here on your screen. And there are three things I see I. It's instant, it's constant and insistent. Instant means previously, if a man or woman wanted to sin, if your father or your grandfather wanted to sin in the 1950s in Singapore, in any city of the world, he wanted to sin sexually, he had to dress himself and go out there, take a trishaw, take a bus, take a taxi, and go out to a red light area or to see his concubine. He had to walk out of the house. Today, if you want to sin sexually, you stay in your room, behind closed doors. And you can sin big time. What do you call that? It's instant. It's constant. And it is insistent. If we now did a survey globally, uh, nationally in Singapore, what percentage of our youth, you think, would have watched pornography and asked a further question, might be addicted to pornography. If you did a survey among our youth groups, Christian youth groups, whom we presume, right, they are brought up in Christian homes, what percentage of our youth in Princep Street, in Orchard Road, in, in Adam Road, would be exposed and indeed addicted and have a problem with pornography? I would hazard you a guess that's a very high figure, and you, you shouldn't be surprised if it's more than 50%. Because I just ask around and uh, people just say, yeah, definitely more than 50%. Which means there's every chance that your teenager, my teenager, your young adult, my young adult, is this. It's insistent, it's in the face. So how many of you think you can live without the phone? Hands up. 
I mean at home. You turn on your screens, can I see you? How many of you can live without your home? Very few people in our modern day world can live without the phone. But we can live with compromise. Actually, it's a joke. You can live without your wife, you can live without your husband, you can live without your parents. Sometimes you can live without food as you just game for hours. But live, live without the phone? Are you kidding me? That is the end of my life. And adults, youth, no week passes in Singapore where another person is caught, right? Voyeurism, upskirting. So I'm so conscious nowadays. One day I was you know, doing my, my walk in the park and was, you know, I carry the phone. If I see anything interesting, I'll show you some photos later. Right? I'll just take photos. Then I walk, 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 then I realize, hey, it's quite dangerous to walk with a phone huh? just in case I get accused of something. Voyeurism happening more and more. And these are not to uneducated people in our midst. They're happening in our campuses, in our universities, which tells you that education is no remedy, is no silver bullet to sin and every manifestation of sin. So the addiction with, with virtuality, it is widespread and it's deep. It's widespread and it's deep because it's instant, it's constant, and insistent. And you ask yourself, as young men and women, older men and women, all of us, are deformed by these images. I'm just speaking to someone about this. In the days in which we grew up, girly magazines and porn was just paper, hard copy. And if we repented, and by God's grace we did, right? we just burned this and never, never come to it again. How does a teenager exposed to this at 13 years old, watched this for five years, detox all those images so that his life is pure again with God and pure again with others, that he will not have warped relationships with women, with men. How? And you ask the very deep question, did you notice that in, in Scripture, beginning here with Colossians, that the first major change Jesus brings to the intervention and disruption of Satan and sin into your life is change in terms of sex. From sexual impurity to sexual purity to the finished work of Jesus and the ongoing work of the Spirit speaking the Word of God to us. And you ask yourself, can Jesus help? Answer is, absolutely. But we've got to take this seriously. The moment your eye and my eye chance upon something which I know is going to lead me to a, a wrong trajectory against God and against myself, i got to have zero tolerance for this. Very important, friends, that we get this right. Step by step, ask Jesus to come into that moment. Because if we belittle Jesus, we will belittle sin in our lives. See, nothing like it was just an image. Nothing. All big sexual sin is a result of small sexual compromises, usually visually and virtually first, before it comes out. Just watch the link between the explosion of voyeurism, the explosion of addiction, the explosion of mental unwellness, because there's so much addiction here and we don't take it seriously. But step by step, I surrender that moment to the Lord Jesus and his beauty and his delight overwhelms the fake beauty and delight of living life by our genitals. There must be a transformation that by the power of Jesus, we move from living life by pleasure to living life by the Messiah. That his delight and his wonder and his awe must consume me more and more. Come taste and see that the Lord is good the psalmist says in the Old Testament. On account of this, the wrath of God is coming. And this, you too once walked when you were living in them. There is a very deep link from God's perspective. The result of sin is always the wrath of God. So never buy into Satan's lie. And what is Satan's lie? You can sin, but no repercussions. You sin so much, right? No thunder, no lightning, you're still walking around and nobody knows. That's the best thing about it. Please don't carry on with that. Because Romans 1, 24, 26, 28 says, 
God gave them over, God gave them over. The very fact you're carrying on with sin, sexual sin, sin of any nature, is not that God is dead, but He's given you over to live this life. He's given you over to indulge in your addiction because that's what you want, that's what you get. You reap what you sow, I reap what I sow. Never buy into that. It's a lie of the evil one. But now you must put off all, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Here's a list. He's moved from five sexual sins to a list of five anger and speech sins. And now he speaks of the power of Christ by his death and resurrection and ascension to sit at God's right hand, to pour out his spirit, to change not just our sexual lives, but to change our heart, our speech, and our anger, which destroys relationships. Anger. Most of our anger is subjective anger. Right? I don't like this lunch. I don't like this breakfast. I don't like this colour. And you know, couples can fight over the colour of the walls, the curtains that's there, the music that they play. All sorts of things can happen. But God's anger is a righteous anger. It's based objectively on His word. Rough, actually, this is where the English translation in the ESB is perhaps has, could have done it better because rough, the actual Greek word there, is a gentler version, so it should actually have read rough, anger, right? Because rough is the more heavy word there. Malice, it's speech flowing from envy of neighbour, ill will towards neighbour, a bad heart towards neighbour. And if you got ill will towards your neighbour here, it would lead to slander and de defamation and damaging of the neighbour. That instead of saying, I've got envy in my heart, I externalise it, I blame it, that, and it comes out obscene language. So this list works in reverse. The obscene language is the one that controls, uh, that, that manifests all the things that are in, from the internal to the external, flowing from all the above. Exodus 20, Pastor Jeff read the opening verses. But you know how Exodus 20, the, the Ten Commandments is? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. 9. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. 10. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbour's. So, the flip side or the outworking of loving God is loving people made in God's image. And Israel was given this very high calling as part of knowing God that she should not bear false witness against neighbour. Whatever you do not know, I don't bear false witness. Every day you and me wake up, what must we do? I wake up, I should have only one prayer. How do I bless others? Not how do I trip out others. How do I falsely accuse others? Right? And it goes on. Six things, seven things that God hates. Six things the Lord hates, yet seven abomination to Him. A proud look actually begins with us, each of us. Pride. Then that pride leads to a lying tongue, leads to hands that shed innocent blood, and a heart that devises wickedness, and feet that are so swift in running to evil, and then a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. This is what God hates, and He tells His people again and again, this is an extrapolation, an explanation what you should never do to neighbour. Lie against them. Shed blood against them. Bring discord among people. But it begins where? When Jesus came, He pronounced it as such in Mark chapter 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. From, from within, out of the heart of men, please follow me. You may want to read this with me at home as you listen to this or watch this, from out of the heart of men come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, oh, surprise, surprise, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. 
So you see, the list of sins or vices that Paul pulls out, the apostles pull out, they are built on and premised on the list of sins that Jesus speaks about. That when we decouple ourselves from God, when we disconnect our lives from God, what are we totally capable of? We are totally capable of the slippery slope from pride. And pride will always envy neighbour. Instead of focusing on what I already have from God, we focus on what we do not have. And I want that to anger sins, to speech sins. And friends, sometimes we encounter it, or a good proportion of time, we are encountered in ministry. I should actually put this as a huge caveat to any ministry and counselling we do. If you ask me to counsel you, you ask any of your pastors to counsel you, to help you, please don't somewhere along the line make us part of your problem. And so the past few weeks, it's just a person accusing more accusations of what you have done wrong, what you have not done, what you have done wrong, what you have not done. And I sit there thinking, help me, God. Help me, God. I do not know how to deal with such men and women. I do not know how to deal with men and women who have this problem, then externalize it and blame it on us. I do not know how to deal with, with proud men and women, envious men and women who lay the blame on us. Please help me, O Lord. Another bout of it, anybody who wants to live a godly life will face this, will be persecuted. And a fair amount of the persecution is envy, anger, and speech sins in day-to-day -day living. Not just violent persecution, but it is that. When Jesus hung on the cross, they laughed at him, they mocked him. If you are the Son of God, you come down. Did that hurt more than... Did that hurt more than the nails that pierce him? It was one whole package. Men and women behaving badly is when we externalize the blame to others and don't ever think it ever came from our heart. And so much of true gospel ministry, we will face it. So pray to understand this. It says, do not lie to each other. Do not make light of your sexual sin, that it begins with you, your lust your evil desires. Please don't make light of your anger and speech sins. And please don't make light that you have only one person to offer you a new start. You try any other way to save yourself. You spend your whole life blaming others in circumstances. Then you never need Christ. Never need Christ. Seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices, the Christian is an exchange of clothes from the clothing of convicts to the clothing of freedmen. I think maybe the best movie that captures this is Les Miserables. When he sings, who am I? Who am I? I'm going to be stuck with this number forever and ever because I stole a loaf of bread. But the new thing, the good thing, is this is what Jesus has given to us. We've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of His Creator, Image of Christ was spoken about in chapter 1, verse 15. And Christ is the fullest revelation of God. And don't forget, He doesn't just reveal God to us. He, got, he revealed God's original blueprint to us. He's the truest representation of what a man, a woman should be like. Made in God's image. Made to love holiness, not to love sinfulness. And to explain away sinfulness sexual sinfulness and relational sinfulness in our life, social sinfulness in our life. Do not lie to each other. Renewed in the knowledge of His Creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. Just look at verse 11 carefully before we come to an end. No Greek or Jew. He's referring most likely to a racial barrier. Because no love lost between the Jews and the Greeks. Circumcised and uncircumcised, religious barrier. Barbarian, Scythian, class barrier. Right? Slave and free. This is our status barrier. It says whatever barriers we had, and in all likelihood, in the house churches of Asia Minor, of the first century, gathered there were people who previously hated each other but now all brought together by the blood of Christ and kept together by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Christ is in all equally and Christ is all 
that matters. Christ is all that matters and in all. So please take note that then to now, we always face barriers, racial, cultural, class, human, and they bring a lot of human pain. We don't say it, even here, around the world, what are we facing? Which lives matter? Black lives matter, white lives matter, yellow lives matter, all lives matter. And 200 years after the Civil War, there's still a lightning rod issue in America. You mentioned the Rohingyas in Myanmar is a lightning rod issue. You mentioned the Uyghurs in China is a lightning rod issue. We just had our general elections. You crossed the line with racial comments, with religious comments, as one of our politicians did. Right? It's tender. It's very tender. And a huge thing in any society is, should we have a minimum wage? Should we have a progressive wage? What is that? That's a class barrier. Whenever we raise this, it's very tender. And we divide, we polarise ourselves. And God is saying to us through Paul, please, from now on, if we believe in Jesus, we no longer deal with anyone by defining them racially, by defining them by class or culture or status. We deal with each other no longer by caricature, but by Christ. So you mustn't ever say in your heart, oh, all Jews are like that. Lah. Cannot be trusted. They love money. Right? They're all Shylocks. All Gentiles are like that. They're all crooked. All barbarians. All barbarians. My goodness, he's a barbarian. Did you see the way he ate? Right? When he came to our house, right? how can my daughter date someone like that? Uh, we deal with each other by caricature. We don't watch it. It comes down to the personal. All men are like that. All women are like that. Then it comes down to the really personal. That was big category still, right? Mona, my wife, will always be like that. Chris will always be like that. You never change. You never change is a most ungospel, unbiblical, ungodly statement. And many of us in our relationships have got unstuck because we are dealing with each other by superiority or inferiority. Some form of it. You are like that. You will never change. The very heart of the message, the very heart of Colossians 3 is, if you are in Christ, you are changed positionally. And you can change because you are taking part in the most powerful force in the world, Jesus and His resurrection and ascension and His coming again. So anything or anyone who affects you, assures you, controls you more than Jesus is most likely an idol. You know, sometimes when we minister to others, uh, they were traumatised from young. When father and mother said to them, useless lah, compared to your sister, boy, I got straight jacketed, I got put into a rut. Or you go to, into your jobs, first job, second job, third job, and they think you're underperforming. And then they whisper, whisper between bosses and between colleagues that you are, you are good for nothing. And all those things start to affect you. They traumatise you. They box you in. You are always like that. You will never come up to scratch. We must never do that in the body of Christ. And the fact that in our pastoral team, we can have a Pastor Jeff from his background and a Pastor Chris from my background, we are all one in Christ shows that that's what we are on about. Nothing's going to divide us, right? I'm looking at Pastor Jeff. Amen. Yep. He just said amen. So beware Christianity of no consequence in which you say, I've, become a, I've been a Christian the last five years, the last ten years. I actually grew up in children's church. I grew up in Sunday school. I grew up in youth fellowship. But no change to my sexual life. No change to my relational life. No change to my anger and speech sins. No change to blaming and externally externalizing my problem. No change to this at times, superiority over others. No change to my inferiority against others. No change. Maybe you have merely been a churchgoer, a ministry doer, a leader by name, but never needed Jesus desperately in your life, from moment to moment for your whole life. That I can't save myself. I fall short. I fall short. I need somebody to help me. A Christianity of no consequence, my friends, is quite different 
to a Christ of no consequence. There is no such thing as a Christ of no consequence. If you believe in Jesus, there will be a massive transformation in our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with others. Amen? Absolutely true. Our spiritual weakness is that we are half dead to self-effort, half dead to self-performance, half dead to self-sufficiency. I can still get myself out of this sexual sin. I can still wiggle myself out of this anger sin, this envy sin. I won't acknowledge I'm envious. I won't acknowledge I was angry. I won't acknowledge I was, I was uh, obscene in my talk against others. I slandered somebody. I badmouthed him. I will always have another reason. You always have another reason. That's called half dead to self and half dead to Christ. And so in listening to this, may the challenge come, it is Christ or nothing. It's the cross or bust. Because I depend on anything else but Jesus and the cross, I'm a finished man or woman. So I went for my, one of my power prayer walks and devotion times with God at East Coast Park here, a lovely park, one of our largest parks in Singapore. And after an hour or so, I got back to the car, I was driving out and got out to the boom gate, you know, and uh, the boom gate should go up because it takes off the, the fee uh, electronically, but the boom gate didn't go up. So uh, I, I pressed the, the button there to ask for help. It took a while. I was getting worried that no one would listen to this. It's 24-hour help. So I pressed it. So I told, and finally the lady answered. Sir, what's your problem? I said, I'm, I'm East Coast Park here, car park, uh, this number. The, the boom gate uh, won't go up. He says, uh, okay, you just go out and you push it. Lah. I said, you, did you say push it? The boom gate goes up, right? Shouldn't I push it upwards, not push it. She said, push forward. I said, no, no, you go and just push it forward. Push forward. So I got out of the car and went to push the boom gate forward. A bit stiff, a bit stiff. I got back to the car and said, if I push this as hard as I can, right, I think I might break it. Then she said, break it, break it. I want you to break it. Then I said, did you say break it? She says, yes, you got to break it. Oh, okay, I'll go out and break it. So I got out of the car, but before I went to break it, there were two, three cars piled up behind me, right? All wanting to get out of the park. So I had to run to the driver and say, uh, she told me to break it, nah. uh, just in case you think I'm breaking the law, but she told me to break it. <laughs> so after that, I ran out there and broke. Actually, it was just an aluminum piece and it bends very easily. And so what did I learn from that? It's good to be a lawbreaker. For the first time in my life in Singapore, I was given the license to break the law. <laughs> no, friends. I asked for help. I couldn't get out of a car park. And the help that was needed was break the law. You can't get out. You can't get out. Lesson. We are all lawbreakers because we are all God-haters. If I don't confess that, I will never need the Lord Jesus, who is the ultimate God-lover and the ultimate law-keeper and fulfiller. If I don't ever confess that, I'm a man in trouble. In all my sexual temptation moments, in all my relational moments, in anything in life, from superiority to inferiority, Christ is all that matters, and Christ is in all. So it's Jesus and the cross or bus. You believe that? And so for us to be re-imaging Christ, we've got to arrive broken every time and then we leave whole. We arrive broken at the cross and we leave whole from a situation. I hold that out to you, that bringing Christ into anything will change everything. We're going to sing a song in closing, King of Kings. And that song is to proclaim and say to you and me again, anything apart from Jesus and the cross is not self-redemption, it's self-damnation. Maybe you and me have tried that for too long while pretending to be a pastor, while pretending to be an elder or deacon or Bible study leader, while pretending I grew up in a Christian family, I have a Christian uh, marriage, but in all those things, 
day by day, moment by moment, there is no deeper appreciation and need of Jesus as your Saviour and Lord. Maybe this is the first time you give your life completely to Christ and say, help me, O God. I'm a sinful man or woman. Let's pray. Since then, we have been raised with Christ. We are to seek the things that are above, the new reality that Christ is God's end time and eternal ruler, rightful ruler. He's God's gracious intervention to stop the fatal interruption of Satan and sin and death in our lives. And we know we manifest this in our idolatry and our immorality. And until we put to death the sinful nature by knowing that Jesus alone has accomplished this, He is the ultimate one who loves God. He is the ultimate one who fulfills the law. He is the one to we can turn to and say, I was never a law keeper. I was never a God lover. Oh, help me, O oh God, to come to that broken, to come to you broken, but reconciled and made new in Christ and Christ alone. And we pray that in doing so, we will now pray to live a life that is worthy of you and pleasing to you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray for your glory. Amen.